This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I have been living in my apartment in New York City for over 12 years. I live in a building that was built in the late 1800s and was refurbished as a co-op in the 1980s. When the renovation was underway, The builders configured the apartments cheaply, complete with the thinnest possible walls and little to no insulation between floors. As a result, the noise factor in my home is rather boisterous. The last four years, this has been amplified by the arrival of Lena, the little girl who lives upstairs. Lena is one of the most beautiful little girls I have ever met. She has been in my life since the day she was born, and I have an extraordinary fondness for her. She often knocks on my door and shyly asks if she can visit, and she comes in to watch cartoons on my bed, she eats cookies and potato chips, and she endlessly plays with my dogs. Lena is a girly girl. Her parents are both well-known theater folk, and she is always dressed in the most imaginative and colorful outfits. She also sports a pair of patent leather Mary Janes that I am certain she is so attached to, she sleeps in them. While one can't help but recognize how cute and smart and adorable and clever Lena is, living beneath her has proven to be a bit of a challenge. You see, from the moment Lena wakes up until the moment she goes to bed, she races around her apartment in those Mary Janes, or she plays her cherished xylophone, or she bounces balls, and chases what I can't help but imagine is her cat. Despite the intensity and consistency of the ruckus, I have been reluctant to complain to Lena's parents for a myriad of reasons. First, they are incredibly lovely people, and I don't want to annoy them. Second, I'm crazy about Lena and would hate to be the cause of curbing her boundless enthusiasm. And finally, Lena's father once helped me rid my apartment of an errant squirrel that had fallen five floors from my roof, down the chimney, into my fireplace, and laid in my living room. I didn't want to seem ungrateful. Nevertheless, I have mentally fantasized about what to say and how to say it many times. But until three weeks ago, I never did. I changed my mind after what sounded like a rigorous round of bowling, followed by a clean sweep of their apartment with an industrial-sized vacuum cleaner at 9 a.m. on Saturday. Bleary-eyed, I mustered up the courage and sent Lena's parents an apologetic email, gingerly asking if they could reduce the noise factor on weekend mornings. Being the gracious people they are, they responded immediately and regretfully, assuring me they would do everything possible to keep the noise volume to a minimum. I was really relieved at their congeniality and thrilled at the prospect of an unencumbered slumber. The reprieve lasted three weekends. When this past Sunday, I was awoken to screaming and crashing. Lena was having a play date with what sounded like the New York Knicks. 
Unable to take it anymore, I bounded out of bed like a crazy woman, hair on end, pajamas askew, and dead set on flying up the stairs, banging on the door, and demanding that they play outside. But by the time I got to my front door, I reconsidered and instead decided to flee. Without brushing my hair or teeth or even changing out of my T-shirt and sweatpants I had slept in, I decided to take my dogs out for their morning walk. Children's bedlam aside, our culture has become overtaken by noise. Cell phones, police sirens, car alarms, those horrific two-way pagers, radios and taxi cabs, the constant hum of air conditioners, televisions, email pings, and residual iPod headphone overflow has now made silence a precious commodity. And it is not unusual to have overlapping sensory overload. Attending a basketball game recently, I counted five different oral experiences simultaneously. An organ, an announcer, a hot dog man, three nearby cell phone conversations, all accompanied by the roar of the crowd. We are now living in an age where the cacophony is both deafening and ubiquitous. Things once thought free from this, even opposed to it, a museum, the theater, a library, find it ever more difficult to retain autonomy in the face of constant communication and connection. And we have become sensitized to it as well. At the very same time, smaller and smaller temporal and physical crevices are being packed with the voices and messages of the moment. I think one of my guests today, Jessica Helfand, describes it best in her essay on sound, authenticity, and cultural amnesia from her book, Screen, Essays on Graphic Design. Silence, she says, in contemporary life is not only a commodity, it is an endangered species, hard to come by, hard to still to sustain, and oddly associated with a kind of anachronistic worldview. Silence is the stuff of old media, a body of stillness and inert mass. In today's 24-7 multiplex of sensory input, we have come to identify and accept what writer Mark Skolka calls an auditory landscape as a new lexicon, a built-in yet discordant soundtrack of accidental sound bites juxtaposed against and superimposed upon the already noisy world we inhabit. After I left my apartment last Sunday morning, I took my dogs to the neighborhood park. As I walked past the little church on the corner, I once again heard a loud commotion when all of a sudden the door burst open and throngs of people started filing out one by one, holding what looked like tree branches. Then they started to sing, every one of them. And then I remembered it was Palm Sunday and quickly realized I was standing in the very path that they were traversing. I didn't want to interrupt their stride, so I moved over and watched them go by. The dogs were riveted as each of the singers passed by. Every single one of them smiled as the two little dog faces stared up at them in amazement. For it was truly an amazing scene to behold. And as the volume increased and the singing became more triumphant, I couldn't help but laugh at the irony of my impatience and intolerance. And I rejoiced in the gift of sound, all sounds, noisy, boisterous, harmonious, rowdy, robust, unruly, but most of all, alive. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are designers and writers, Jessica Helfand and William Drentel. Before we get started with our interview, let me tell you a little bit more about them. 
William Drentel and Jessica Helfand are partners in Winterhouse, a design studio in Northwest Connecticut, and co-founders of the critically acclaimed weblog, Design Observer. Their clients range from the Poetry Foundation to Errol Morris, the New England Journal of Medicine to the Norman Rockwell Museum, Yale Law School to the NYU School of Journalism. In 2000, they designed the trophy for the National Design Awards, and more recently, they are sponsoring a new National Design Writing Award in conjunction with the AIGA. Bill Drentel is President Emeritus of the American Institute of Graphic Arts, a trustee of the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, and a fellow of the New York Institute of the Humanities at NYU. He studied history and film at Princeton University. And Jessica is a senior critic at the Yale School of Art. She has written for numerous publications. Just a few include Aperture, The New Republic, and The Los Angeles Times. She is the author of many books, including Screen, Essays on Graphic Design and Visual Culture, and Reinventing the Wheel, both published by Princeton Architectural Press. She studied architectural theory, as well as receiving an MFA in graphic design, both at Yale University. Welcome, Bill and Jessica. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for being here. Sorry for my little uh, flub there with your quote, Jessica. Um, writing seems to be a core part of your practice. Um, you both write frequently about design as well as being full-time designers. You're both the found, two of the founding editors of the design blog, Design Observer, and you also write and publish books. You recently founded the AIGA Winterhouse Writing Award, so tell me about the connection that you have with design and writing. Why is it so important to you? Bill? Um, well, I think originally, I mean, I think the easiest way to say this is that fundamentally we're editorial designers. So. Well, I know a lot of editorial designers that don't write. Say again? I said I know a lot of editorial designers that wouldn't consider themselves writers. No, but I think the connection in our case is a deep love affair with writing and publications and with editors. And our collaborations with editors have always taken on, I think, a different um, caliber of collaboration in that because we could write, there was a different understanding of the issues in editorial design. Um, but in the last few years, it's also become pretty clear to us that as we watch every magazine in America, you know, adopt design as its favorite topic, that there's actually very few writers to, who can comment intelligently, who can write the news about design, or who can actually provide any kind of critical commentary on, what, on how design is becoming an increasingly important part of American culture. Now, I'm actually in my office looking at the cover of Business Week, the best product design issue. I have a copy of Fast Company, Masters of Design. I have another Business Week issue called Get Creative. Why are the business publications, do you think, writing so much about design right now? Um, Should I well, pick who I want to answer the, the questions? <laughs> design has become the intersection of basically product, uh, consumer products and consumer strategy, mm -hmm. um, branding being sort of the way we talk about that. Okay. Um, but the same, uh, many of the same topics were written about before. We just didn't call it design. What do you think was the tipping point? We didn't call point? it branding, you know, in the old we, days. 
Bill, what do you think was the tipping point in terms of the um, mass business media coming on board with the notion that design will help sell products? Uh, well, I think there's 20 years of people starting to understand that better design product, better designed products, and more awareness about the quality of design on the part of the consumer have a huge impact in the marketplace. Now, you recently started the AIGA Winterhouse Design Writing Awards. What was the motivation for that? I'm going to jump in here and say that you know many motivations, and AIGA also, as you mentioned, is co-sponsoring this felt very strongly that we needed to shake the tree, as Rick Griffith said to me when we first spoke about it, to, to really look and find the next generation of writers about design. I think Bill and I also felt very strongly that um, writing had always been a part of our practice. Whatever we can't figure out in the studio, we figure out in writing. And, and I had a kind of unorthodox background because I was a television writer briefly before becoming a designer. And when I look back at scripts that I wrote 20 years ago, there was a designer struggling to get out. I mean, it was all this description, and I was really trying to find my way. And I think I've later found it through writing books and through writing uh, on Design Observer and through editing books. But I think there's, it's a very sort of holistic way of looking at writing as a sort of companion to and an integral component of the way design is perceived and experienced in our culture. And the culture's changing, and the, the conversation we're having today, I think, really, I think, illuminates some of the reasons why. But, but this new generation that's under 40, since the, right, the Writing Award targets writers under 40, will really, I think, help highlight uh, where those opportunities are for writers who are looking to advance design, not only for designers, but for the general public. Well, Bill and Jessica, we have to take our first break. So uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about the Design Writing Awards and then some of your own writing um, below the fold is one, one of the pieces that I want to talk to you about as well. So I'd like to let everybody know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the designers and writers, Jessica Helfand and Bill Drentel. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Voices of Design brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability, and what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, Chairman, AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit. Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is ahead of the game and, and is what whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. 
Darylyn Reese of Campbell Soup Company, and I'm excited to invite you to the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event this April in New York City. Join me in discussing the power of research and design as they come together in a strategic huddle to drive the Campbell's Chunky brand into the end zone. Plus, hear from design gurus Rem Kulhas and Philip Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, who will discuss how synergistic strategy and design drive brand innovation, consumer loyalty, and profitability. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD, or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters, and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Rise to the challenge. See you in New York City on April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. Happy Good Friday. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are designers and writers, Jessica Helfand and Bill Drentel. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Bill or Jessica, our phone lines are now open, 1-866-472-5790. Oh, we already have a caller. Uh, we have, boy, they came on quickly. Isabel from New York, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, everybody. Um, I have a question for Jessica. I wanted to know, what was it like to study with Paul Rand? Jess? Isabel. Uh, he taught at Yale for a very long time, and uh, in fact, when I was researching my book, I felt that the the interviews I did with his former students was I would have been better equipped had I gotten a degree in therapy, <laughs> uh, because there are many stories about people in tears because he was such a tough critic. I personally found him to be tough, but also a very loving person. I, I had a very special relationship with him in my second year in graduate school because he was my thesis advisor, and I would drive to his house in Western Connecticut. We would sit at his kitchen table, him in his little black Reebok sneakers, and we would sit there and drink tea and eat grapes and cookies. And he would say, and another book you should read. And he would grab another book from the shelf. And he was a voracious reader and gave me books on every visit and told me things I should read. And it was really a sort of wonderful rounding out of my education with him because obviously so much of my interaction with him, as many students found, was extremely critical, sort of hands-on, formal he had rules. He had, as I, as I think I wrote in my book, he, he said, you know, these incredible ex-cathedra statements like, the development of new tape, typefaces is a barometer of the stupidity of our profession. You know, I mean, this, this one, you know, digital type and, and photographer and digital type founders were first getting, getting some traction. Now, why so, did he think you know, that? There was no love lost between Rand and many of his pupils, but I, I adored him. Um, why did he think that, Jessica? Thank you for calling, Isabel. Why, why did he feel that that was such a terrible, terrible thing, that... He, you know, he was a very iconoclastic person. He worked alone, but he had these huge corporate clients. 
and you know he, he hated marketing. He hated design by process. Because he, the designer's process was fine, but the sort of design by group process, the, the thinking, the voting in. You know, he would have hated had he lived to see it. All of the kind of user testing that interaction designers go through. He was very opposed to that. Very kind of an imperialist, superior attitude about it. But it served him well. I mean, he didn't really have to have to communicate to big staff people. He had no overhead. It was just him. And he, he had a couple of rules about business, one of which was always work with the top guy. So mm-hmm. He worked with the top guy at IBM. He worked with the top guy at Westinghouse. He worked with the top guy at ABC. You know, and he got them to approve his logos, and then he would go back and he would do the black book where he would show every possible possibility of the logo. They'd pay him a ton of money, and, and he would sort of go on his merry way. Mary is, I use qualified terms. He was not a particularly outwardly happy person, but... In truth, he was a—you know—he he was happy working. He, Steve Heller says that in the very end of his life, uh, on his deathbed, he was still faxing logos to the clients. I mean, he was really just a, happy when he was working, happy when he was teaching. But he had very strong and specific ground rules for how he saw design in the world. Now, for the listeners that might not be aware, Jessica has written an incredible book called Paul Rand, American Modernist. And one of the things that really struck me when I was reading it, Jessica, in preparation for this interview, you write about how in each of of Paul Rand's own books, he scrutinized the relationship between intuition and ideas in graphic design. And I'm curious to know about your thoughts on the relationship between intuition and ideas in design. How how important is that to you? Well, I'm going to answer that in a slightly different way because I'd like Bill to jump in and tell you and your listeners now about our experience uh, going to Boston a few years ago when Paul Rand's library had been dissolved, so to speak, and many many of his books had gone to Yale and various things that had not been selected by the library ended up in a number of wonderful bookstores in Boston. And Bill and I happened to be in Boston one day and came upon many things we knew would be in his library. So would you like to talk about that, what we found? It was actually an early piece in Design Observer in the Sort of, you could, we went into this really the Brattle Street bookstore in Boston, and you could almost go into a section and say Paul Rand has been here because <laughs> one knew he collected philosophy and that he collected psychology and he collected you know just endless areas. And we found all these books. We found a book by Kafka that uh, Milton Glaser had given him. Uh, we found philosophy. Uh, we found all these subjects, and we bought in one day. I think we found 22 items um, that had been in the Paul Rand Library. Some of them we could recognize by his handwriting. Some of them had book plates. Uh, there were art books where just in the margins would be written, "Wow!" I mean, he was just. It was pretty clear he was excited about everything. Now, was this something that you came upon by accident, or had you been told that there were books in this bookstore in Boston? I have a sense right now that all of our listeners have put down their their computers and are now racing up to Boston. <laughs> <laughs> we knew that there were books there, but we felt, I think, that we weren't sure that everybody knew how robust a library he had. We, had, we knew because of the books he'd given us, and the, in the years we'd known him, we'd seen his library, that he collected Judaica, that he... But he was a you know a very serious scholar, and and in, in many ways we, we knew that that this was a very library. So the, the parts of these bookstores that we went into might not have been as heavily trolled as the as um, with other people. 
Now, Bill, you mentioned um, this article being um, one of the earlier articles on Design Observer. Let's talk about Design Observer. How, how did you, why did you start Design Observer? I know you started it with, with Michael Beirut and with Rick Pointer, who's now uh, writer emeritus. What was the motivation for starting this blog? Bill? Um, well, I, I think originally I was vlogging, so to speak, in that I was just reading a lot. But very early on, I, I mean, this is now two and a half, three years ago, so it's, it's early in today's blog. Um, it's not early compared to other people they caught there. But well, it was very it early. Me, I think you were the, the second major player. Something, uh, possible, a different kind of writing that was possible if you could make a collaborative um, partnership where people could write serious, long essays but not have to write every day. And that the structure, the way blogs were being done with you know, mostly individuals but not, except, you know, obviously not that, speak up isn't that. But that there was a, another way to conceive of a blog where we would have three or four people uh, who would be writing once or twice a week and that that model could lead to a different kind of writing. And I think two and a half years later, what's clear about Design Observer and what makes it so special is that it's not it's not um, blogging about what I had to dinner at dinner last night. It's mm-hmm. not um, rough findings from what I found online this morning. Um, it continues to be this original conception, which is that we you know twice a week we we file a pretty finished. Thousand to two thousand word essay on the topic, mm-hmm. um, and that model. When we originally approached, uh, we we prototyped it. One of the essays we used to prototype it was actually a little essay about Paul Rand called "Bibliography as Biography." It was just a bibliography of what we found in that day at the Brattle Street Bookshop. Right. Um, but when we approached Rick Pointer and then Michael Beirut, what was I think the attraction for all of us was that a different kind of writing was possible that wasn't filtered through waiting three or four months for it to be published in a print magazine, nor endless editorial processes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it does have that advantage, but Design Observer kind of assumes a different level of responsibility about writing and how finished that writing is before it's published. Tell me a little bit more about that. Can you elaborate? Uh, well, I think Design Observer has a different level of, different quality of writing than most blogs. Okay. I mean, most of our essays could be published in magazines and are pre- pretty finished. They don't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't require, you know, three editors and three proofreaders. Oh, yeah, that we took some hits from it early on. People thought we were, you know, being too sort of pontificating and, and, when the blog atmosphere, the blogosphere was really sort of first getting its feet wet and, and I think the sort of conversational tone of most blogs which made them engaging to most people, we were kind of taking this moral high ground about wanting to do finished pieces. And it was hard because we really did want to do serious writing about serious things. And I think Bill in particular felt very strongly that there was a world out there of people who were interested in designing more designers. So we needed to write in a way that did not close the sphere down, that it wasn't for this sort of design ghetto, so to speak. We didn't, you know, have this kind of 
slang vernacular language that we were all in the same club, but in fact we really opened it up to larger issues. And, and I think over time that's really what it's become. Right about you know the, the design of a new Iraqi flag, the perfect thing. You know, suddenly mm-hmm. people are interested in what is that symbol? What what is this nationhood? How is that going to be expressed visually? And how do we express it verbally through through this medium? Well, I remember when you announced that you were introducing the blog, or you introduced the idea of the blog uh, at the AIGA National. Uh, conference in Vancouver, and I, well, I remember. It's not often that you have 2,500 people sitting in the audience. It seemed like an op- a really good opportunity. It, but and, and I actually remember sort of hearing the sort of hush that went over the room. You know, at the idea of you entering this uh, atmosphere, this this media environment that at the time was really just at the very beginning of becoming mainstream. And uh, we have to take a break in a few minutes, or in about a minute, but I, I just wanted to ask you about why you decided on the blog format as opposed to uh, publishing a magazine or doing something else that would be more um, permanent, so to speak, it, that you could hold. Well, having done a lot of those, they're wonderful, but the, but the lead time means that you can't do the kinds of... I mean, there's something about the immediacy that's extremely attractive. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to say that it was about the exchange with the world, but I don't think any of us really knew just how conversational and interactive that would become until it really, you know, obviously you want to write the thing that someone's going to want to respond to and not assume that there will be a response. But I do think it's the immediacy. There's something very exciting about being able to report things almost as they happen. Now, Bill, at the um, HAL conference last year, uh, you were on a panel that Steve Heller moderated, and you were talking about, uh, during that discussion, that hey, you didn't think that the Design Observer readership was a community. Um, do you still feel that way? I think that's a little out of context. I think we were, what we were talking about, I, I continue to believe that there's a huge difference between the community of readers mm-hmm. and the community of commenters. Oh, I see. Okay. Times over at 600,000 site visits a month and maybe two, three, four hundred comments. So a very popular piece that gets commented on. It feels like there's this dialogue going on, but in fact it's, it's a dialogue among a very few people. And yeah, um, yeah. we're all in favor of it, which is why blogs are so interesting, but it's, it's not the main community. And that's uh, the distinction uh, yeah. I insist on. Okay, you know, I, I see what you're saying. I find it interesting. I think one of the most interesting things about Design Observer is that the articles do stand on their own. You don't even need to necessarily read the comments. That makes it, it gives it a bit more dimension, but I think that, uh, as you're saying, that there, there are pieces that you could see in a, in a magazine very easily and, and not necessarily even need the feedback to make them as interesting or as relevant as they are. Um, but we have to take a break, unfortunately. I'd love to keep talking about this. Um, I'd like to let our readers, our listeners know that uh, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are designers and writers Jessica Helfand and Bill Drantel. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio, Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Voices of Design brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part two. Enjoy. The Challenge of Sustainable Design. 
Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Sonora Bean. Digital Hive Ecological Design. Sustainability isn't just a great idea, but it's a design challenge. And so as designers, how can we use our skills and our thinking and our strategy to promote social change? Ron Radziner, Marmel Radziner Architects. I think that architecture as a profession that we've become too removed from the actual act of making and we've become kind of just aesthetic consultants and I think that our office is this attempt to bring that all back together which is really how buildings used to be designed and built and take responsibility for what we design. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Hello, I'm Sharon Ryder Lindbergh from Unilever North America. I'll be speaking at FUSE Brand Identity and Package Design event in April at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. I'll be discussing the development and the rollout of the new Hellman's Global Brand Identity. FUSE is the destination for brand design leaders. Will you be there? Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or call 888-670-8200 to find out more about this great event. Consider this an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. Stay at the top of your game. Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD today. Mention Design Men. You'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Look forward to seeing you in New York in April. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building in New York City, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I'm Debbie Millman, your host. My guests today are designers, educators, writers, Jessica Helfand and Bill Drentel. If you want to join our conversation, if you have a question for Bill or Jessica, please call us, one 472 5790 and it does seem that there are a number of people holding to speak with Bill and Jessica. Stephen, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, thank you very much. Um, as I heard from the intro, you guys are very involved in academics and have a, a long history of um, education. So my question is, what do you think the role of academics in design is and what benefits it can bring? An excellent question, Stephen, and um, I'll try to answer it, but there are probably many answers to that question. I would start out by saying that there's probably a difference between undergraduate education and graduate education. Um, I personally didn't go to an art school undergrad, uh, but I've been teaching in a graduate program for many years, and I think that the focus and the rigor that I would say not just at Yale where I teach, but at, at other schools where I have been fortunate to be invited as a critic it really differentiates the kind of time spent, the focus, the maturity demanded of the individual to really understand how to build a body of work over a period of two years. In undergraduate school, uh, even in schools that are art schools where there is also a focus on making, 
I think that the educational requirements and really demands on the students tend to be more broad and should be. Certainly in, a, in an undergraduate program that is a liberal arts program, that would be the emphasis that I would hope for my students, for my children, for it's certainly the kind of thing I had, which is to really kind of um, experience many different kinds of ways of learning and to be sure that uh, you want to study design on the graduate level, but also because that kind of learning, that kind of reading, that kind of in-depth and constant inquiry um, can only make you a better designer. Uh, we sometimes struggle a little bit at the graduate level with students. Uh, at Yale, they required, art students are required to take courses in the humanities to balance out their studio work. And there are certain things that are very intense, uh, classes in the sciences, in the hard sciences, you know, biology classes that have lab time, or even languages that require five days a week in the language lab. We tend to uh, steer our students away from some of those things because they become um, difficult in terms of time management, given that you only have two years and you really are, are in the studio all the time. But in general, I think your, your goal as a student, if, if I'm right in assuming you are a student, is to really just try to build your skills, but also not do that at the expense of, of really expanding your mind. Thank you, Jessica. We have um, somebody else on the telephone that we were just talking about during the break. We have Marion Banshees from Vancouver. Marion, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hello. Um, I have a question. It's a little bit out of left field. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> from Marion Banshees, a question out of left field. What a surprise. <laughs> I'm just wondering if uh, Winterhouse was to design, say, a pair of pajamas, a very serious pair of pajamas, can you um, give me some indication as to what, what that might turn out like? If Winterhouse was going to design a pair of pajamas, Bill, would you like to answer this? Um, well, I'm trapped here because I would probably answer that why would I design a pair when I have very, very beautiful pajamas already designed by Emma Gray. Ah. See, I thought you were going to say, why would I design a pair when I don't wear them? Well, that's the other <laughs> answer, which is why I still have my immigrant pajamas years ago. Now, you're probably going to think this is somewhat... Um, Irresponsible for me to say on the air, but I can say that I know that Marion has a pair of immigrant pajamas as well. They're beautiful, the, the hypnopedia pajamas. Um, Marion, are you still there? Oh, I guess she's not. You got her answer, I suppose. I guess, I guess so. Um, I want to talk I, I would, a little. But just to seriously answer the question, I think yes. you know this is sort of maybe one of our problems is we're kind of language content oriented so we might actually start pajamas you know by putting wanting to put the entire text of something very esoteric and rare Bill, pajamas and trying to because wanting to read them and then Jessica would say well that's not what I want to sleep in sure I'm the one who sleeps in pajamas also it's Bill who who really has a strong demand that everything have content and I occasionally I'm really happy to you know design labels for maple syrup which we have from our own trees here well, they were and they were beautiful labels. Well, I've thank seen them. you. Yeah. Some of the most actually enjoyable projects we've done actually have it occasionally to get a break from from all of the reading and the writing and the thinking and to just make something beautiful. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your personal history, if you don't mind. How did you two meet? I uh, had a boyfriend who was a partner of Bill's when he was a Gentle Dollar partner. He okay. was an architect. Uh huh. And the architect and I uh, didn't last very long. And at the time we met, Bill was actually married to someone who was not me. And then uh, two years later, I happened to be at the AITA conference in Miami, and there I was 
loan, and there was no loan, and I came up with a very um, completely uh, a loan not not plausible line. I called him. I was editing a special issue of the AIGA Journal, and I asked him to write an essay for me, and I was then living in Philadelphia designing a magazine. I said I would be in New York the next week. Was he free for lunch? And he said no, but he was free for dinner. Oh. So you do have a romantic side, Bill, don't you? It does. So how, how would you describe your professional relationship? You work together, you live together, married, have children. How do, how, do you, how do you intertwine all those different roles? I take my battles. No, uh-huh. it's, it's a lot of divide and conquer. And um, I should let Bill answer. He may have a different view. But I have to say one very unusual thing. We, we always lecture, almost always lecture together. Mm-hmm. And it's a very nice thing because it forces us to come together several times a year to go over the work. It, given all the divide and conquer that we do do with teaching and writing and children in the studio, to really understand what we're doing, what we should be doing, how we think about the work, how we qualify it, how we would describe it to students or to people in a different country. And then we go together, usually leaving our children, sometimes bringing our children, and we go together and give a lecture. And we very, very often disagree. And disagreeing in public is something that we've found that audiences are really interested in. <laughs> So it's been sort of a nice uh, excuse to travel together and uh, stay clear and focused about the work. What was the last thing you disagreed about? Probably a sofa. This morning? Yeah. Yeah, what was the, what was the last fight you two had? I don't know. I have to think about that. Or just the last disagreement. Uh, it's uh, we're doing, we're it's doing often a, about my cooking. <laughs> no, we're doing a poster for a project in New York City to put, I don't know, 400 posters in Times Square. Oh, the Urban Tree Project. The Urban Tree Project, and Jessica's doing very language-based things that I don't, I'm not convinced will be readable from you know, 40 feet off the ground. Oh. So there's so, this like, this is actually one. As, what's interesting when you disagree is that you're often flipping sides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Good this is that one where that. Jessica actually started with you know a very content-oriented thing, and I'm being the one worried about the formal issues about whether you can read it from 40 feet away or not. And now, how do you resolve your disagreements? Hang I usually hit him. <laughs> <laughs> I walk out the door, calm down, and come back in. No, it was hard at first. I mean, he ran a big business in New York, and he had 15 people working for him, and I had a little business in New York, and it was very hard at first. And so um, uh, we, I think we found that we each have different strengths. Um, he's really detail-conscious. Mm-hmm. He's a really good manager. He's an amazing art director. He's got great ideas. He's really good at sitting in meetings and being the smartest person in the room, which is great unless he does it at my expense and makes it me sound stupid. And then I kick him under the table and he remembers and he's nice again. Okay. But um, And I'm really good at starting things, but I have no patience to finish them. I'm not allowed to measure anything in the studio because I'm mathematically impaired. I just really just didn't get that DNA from either of my parents. But Bill is brilliant that way. So, you know, you start to realize where things are good and bad. And sometimes we just, you know, butt heads. But most of the time we have found a way to to really respect each other's differences. I also, I have a painting studio in the basement now. And, I, you know, I find that sometimes I just need to go make stuff that has nothing to do with our work. And I go and I do that and I come back and I'm fine. Now, this is the first that I've actually heard about you painting. Is this something that's new or is that something that you've just... Um, about, four, about the last three or four years, um, and, and I'm, I can explain it to you and to your listeners in, in the only way I know how, which is that I lost my mother four years ago, uh-huh. and I was very, very close to her, and it is the one thing in my life that has made absolutely no sense to me, because it happened, and that's it, and I think as a mother myself, and being so close to my mother was very difficult, and one day, I just somebody said to me, you know, when you realize when you lose somebody, you, nobody can get through it but you. 
I realized right. it was an incredibly solitary thing I needed to get through, and I started painting. And it was the best therapy, the best sort of most meaningful way I could kind of try to understand this. And my children know when they're in that studio, they're not allowed to talk. They can play now, music. Are you going to start there, showing your work? But they can't talk. Not when I'm painting. Not when I'm actually in that studio. In that space, it's, it's a sort of silent. It's about making. It's about, it's about making work. And are you going to start showing in, in galleries or show to the public I love in any to. way? Uh, you know, I, I have little kids. I really have, there's a lot of incom- un- incomplete projects, but there's like three or four things going on there that I'm very excited about. So I hope eventually. Well, it's, it's been really good for us in the practice, too, because I realized I, you know, these to make fun of me. We had two designers who worked for us years ago who, when my kids were really little and we would do all these crafts projects in the studio and they used to joke that they were going to write a tell-all biography called Jessica Helfand, the Craft Years. <laughs> and write about you know me making paper in the blender, but in fact, Bill very sweetly one day came up to me and he said, "I know we make fun of you, but you're doing this for a reason. You're trying to get towards something, and I understand that." And it was really the greatest vote of confidence I could have had, and 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 he was right. It was really you know it, it eventually worked its way into the basement painting studio, but I think it's helped our work. Certainly I'm really anxious to see. I'm really anxious to see your painting. Can't wait till you start to show it. I'm going to check I think out. the issue that comes up if you're working in so many literate writing oriented projects is I think what we've actually learned is it's really important to keep making things yes um, I mean what in a large practice working on you know all kinds of projects it's really easy to stop being a designer and to be a branding person or a strategist or you know any of those words but somehow I think because of where we live and how we work sort of found it's important to keep making things. When we come back from the break, I want to talk about some of the things that you're currently making. Um, fortunately, it's time for another break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Voices of Design brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part three. Enjoy. The power of designers and their influence on sustainability. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here's Michael Schwab, Schwab Design. Design does influence people, and whether it's subconsciously or, or obviously, design does mean a lot, and, and, and it leaves a lasting impression. Paul Sappho, Institute for the Future. Designers are thought leaders, and they're action leaders. Designers have got to get this right, and they've got to define it right, because if they get it wrong, all their wrong ideas are going to be embedded in everything everybody else uses. Mark Willard. IDO. Designers have been shaping culture for as long as there's been design. We have a huge opportunity, and I think before long it's going to be an obligation or a mandate to figure out how to solve these projects, these issues, these desires with sustainably relevant solutions. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. 
the challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality, adopt transition into your personal power portfolio, and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.48 Eastern Time, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are designers and writers, Jessica Helfand and Bill Drentel. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, some of your history. Um, this is sort of midpoint between history and current. Um, you gave a riveting and, and quite controversial presentation at the AIGA National Design Conference, and I, I referenced this a little bit before when you introduced uh, Design Observer in Vancouver in 2003, and, and it's titled, Culture is Not Always Popular. And in, in, that, in that lecture, you talked about the role of designers today, uh, the impact of branding, and I'd like to read a quote from the presentation, and I believe, Bill, that you were the person that said this. Um, this is the quote. Designers talk about creating a body of work, but they seldom talk about acquiring a body of knowledge. They take pride in being makers, but seldom identify themselves as thinkers. They claim to be emissaries of communication to give form to ideas, and while we would like to believe that this is true, it seems to us that all too often we, as designers, are called upon merely to make things look good rather than contributing to the evolution and articulation of ideas themselves. And you got a, both a standing ovation and quite a lot of criticism for that speech, both incredibly polarizing. Um, why do you think that, there was, it, that it was so polarizing to people? Bill. Um, well, I don't think, I mean, the, pro the problem with making the speech, and uh, we suffer from the same thing, which is that, you know, fundamentally we're saying designers don't know enough. Mm -hmm. So I'm collecting periodic tables of the elements, but I actually don't know very much about chemistry. Okay. So now, I can do you think that's a bad thing? I can thing? make the critique that there's no designer in the room creating the map that's presenting how we know DNA. But right. I can't actually do a better job than the people that are doing it now. So I think that that you know our critique is open to attack on that level. On the other hand, oh, I see. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot of issues that designers should be participating in, and we've restructured our pra you know, our practice to try to make a practice where we're. we're basically participating in these kinds of issues. But it's you know, it's not like we have all the answers or we know enough to be the next generation. I think the fundamental issue that's raised is how designers are educated. Absolutely. An, an art school education is insufficient 
for the next generation of designers. Absolutely, without a doubt. I cannot tell you how many guest lectures I have done in schools and colleges around the country, and I find that people, I actually often reference Paula Scher's book, Make It Bigger, in terms of understanding the arc of a meeting when I'm talking about the business of graphic design. And I can't even begin to tell you, probably 90% of the people that I talk to don't know who she is, students in universities that don't know who Paula Scher is from Pentagram, and it blows my mind. I, 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 and I could probably go on a bit of a rant about this, but I find that the but lack they, but, of but history... But don't know when World War II happened either. This is true. This is true. And I, I don't understand why or how anyone could criticize not knowing, not wanting to know more about the world in an effort to be better at anything that they do. I think the more aware we are as people, the better we are, the more empathic we are about our position in the world, about the way we can relate to other people, about understanding different points of view. I mean, I think that... If, if all designers do is, is continue to look at the world of design, they're missing the rest of the world. And so I, I can understand why you said that. I, I don't quite understand any of the criticism, but tell me about what your motivation was for giving the presentation at, AI, at the conference in, in Vancouver. What, was, what made you decide to do it there? What made you decide? What, was, what had brought these... Uh, these ideas to the forefront for you? I think one thing that was concerning us was more, it seemed to us in the culture of design in, in schools, in conferences, uh, at places we were going, things we were reading, that the idea of knowledge or an intellectual life was somehow being positioned as antithetical to making work. That there was, if you read too much, you'd be paralyzed. That if you uh, didn't spend every minute going to museums and, you know, understanding craft, this is to suggest that craft is learned by going to museums, which is another problematic notion, uh, that, that, that this was really not going to get you where you needed to go. Or that, worst of all, what you really needed was to just go to school and learn, you know, every Photoshop filter known to man, and you would get a great job and move forward. Now, obviously, this is a great exaggeration, but I think we had enough experiences together and, and separately that we started to think that, that the time had come for us to just stick our necks out um, and we knew that there would be people that would boo us, and we knew that there would be people that would be excited and, and you know, feel that it was good that someone had come out and said it. But it needed to be said. It needed to be said, uh, you know, in terms of business, because obviously you can't sit at the table in a meeting and not be able to complete a sentence. It needed to be said in terms of education, because uh, students need to know going into art school education, design school education at any level, that uh, it is their time, that they should take responsibility for it, and that opening their minds should not be seen as a deterrent to building a body work. Mm -hmm. And it needed to be said at, at these sort of, you know, feel-good, happy gatherings at our design conferences where, you know, people tend to just show work and be excited, and, and, and which is great, and to get inspired, which is great, but that these are also times for us to come together as a community and understand what is going to matter in the future, and putting ourselves out there as, a, you know, as the sort of driving force of a culture that's now being taken seriously outside the profession. So we, we took a at it and uh, you know I think there's a new generation of I mean all these new conferences whether it's GL or TED or you know the, the radical craft conference where there's like this idea that if you've heard an interdisciplinary presentation where you've heard a little physics a little bit about food a little bit about literature that you're a well-rounded person mm. 
that's kind of nonsense. Because the issue is, the truth is that we all actually need to, I mean, and not everybody's going to be able to do this, but we, we actually need people that know a lot about physics, and people in the, that know a lot about the environment, and people that know a lot about food. We don't, you know, this, this kind of interdisciplinary feel-good thing is not going to solve any problems. So how do you see moving forward with the idea of bridging the gap between designers and non-designers in terms of what we can offer the world and how we can help solve problems? With 20 seconds left in your program? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you have two minutes. (laughs) Go. (laughs) Well, you know, um, we've started this new publication called Below the Fold. Yes. This is not a direct answer to your question because it is a difficult one. It's a very good question, Debbie. I wish we had another hour. So do I. But I think, you know, we we have a lot of interest, Bill and I. We have 8,000 books. We live uh, in the country on the top of a mountain uh, about two hours from New York, but the FedEx truck knows how to reach us, which is make that and a, and a good you know, Internet connection makes us feel somewhat connected to the world. Mm-hmm. But we realized that, that maybe one thing we could do was to start this publication where we could find ways of exploring in words and images and through our collection, because we're both big collectors of things, mm-hmm. uh, a way of actually taking specific topics and exploring them in 16 pages and getting them out there. And it's been a great thing for us because we don't feel frustrated as makers, but we can spin these things to be about ideas one issue and about things the next and about collections that can be collaborative. We're going to probably do some collaborations with other outside people. We have enough paper to do four issues, at least for through the first year. Um, but I think, you know, the only thing any of us can do is to uh, really feel involved in many ways, not just one way. So we started the writing wars. We started Below the Fold. We do as many lectures as we feel we're capable of doing and, and doing well. Uh, you know, I think none of us are going to solve the big issues alone, but I think we have to keep sort of um, chipping away at it and finding ways of, of, of creating new opportunities to express ideas, not just within the profession, but outside also. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful way to close our show today. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for participating in today's show and for contributing as much as you do to the community of graphic design and to our human community. Um, I'm going to just ask one last question of Jessica to end the show with a smile. Um, Jessica, I read that your favorite toy growing up was a talking Barbie, the one where you pulled the string out of the back of her neck to make her talk, and I wanted to tell you that so is mine. <laughs> the one from 1968? Yes, I have them all still being collectors. as well. I'm also an avid collector. I collected them all, and I now have them. I have my favorite with Stacy, the, the British Barbie. And did you hold the string so that she went from a chirpy soprano into a slurpy baritone? Or oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I still do. <laughs> You'll have to come over and we'll do that together. <laughs> um, happy holidays, everybody. We've thank come you to the. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. I'd like to thank you both and I'd like to give a special thanks to my sponsors, Adobe and Nina Paper. I'd like to thank Brian Travis and Ruben Colomb at Voice America, the staff and my partners at Sterling, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Joining me next week is designer Ed Fella. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. 
Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. 